الحمد لله رب العالمين له الحمد الحسن والثناء الجميل وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له يقول الحق وهو يهدي السبيل وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه والتابعين لهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Inshallah ta'ala Today we're going to be starting a subject, a science that we haven't done before we haven't studied before it's the first time that we're studying it and this science is very important extremely important it's called usulul fiqh any individual who wants to use evidence proof arguments for a position that you hold in the religion the scholars they say two conditions have to be met if you want to use the textual evidence, the Qur'an or the Sunnah, it has to meet two criterias. It has to meet two conditions. The scholars, they say, Nas Musaddaq. That's one. Two, Bahth Muhaqqaq. Any individual who wants to use evidence, wants to use proof, those are the two criteria that need to be met. What are they? What does it mean? Nasbu Saddaq means that the textual evidence that you're using is authentic. Are we all together? The text that you're going to use, the delil that you're using, is it authentic? Is it sahih? Go verify. This science... What deals with it is Mustalahul Hadith. What science deals with this? Mustalahul. There's a science called Mustalahul Hadith. It's called the science of Hadith. It talks about whether a Hadith is accepted or rejected. Because authenticity is not checked for the Quran. The Quran is authentic. And of course, we're talking about the qiraat which are mutawatira. Are we all together? The second is bath muhaqqaq. Bath muhaqqaq means you're using it evidence and you're using it for a particular situation that there's a relationship between the two. There's a alaqa. For example, I want to say khamr is haram. And then somebody said to me, Khamar is haram? And I said, yes, it's haram. And then he said, what's your delil? And then I said, wa duhaha. Do you see the problem here? Is my evidence authentic? Ha, huh. it is authentic. But the evidence that I brought and the thing that I'm trying to use it for, is there a relationship between the two? The science that deals with this is usulul fiqh. This is where this science plays, the role that it plays. Usul al-fiqh is where you study to be precise and accurate in the usage of your delil. 
Does that make sense? And that's how important it is. ولذلك, a lot of the times you tend to find people are using an evidence that has no relationship with what? With what they're using it for. And you can't identify that. You cannot see that flaw if you haven't studied the science. If you've not taken on the science, you won't be able to. Any individuals using evidence, those two are needed. If you do fulfill those two criterias, you will generally be correct. Your argument will be sound. Your proofs will be strong. Your evidence will be taken into consideration. And so that's why Usulul Fiqh is a science that is greatly needed. It is what? A science that's greatly needed. We will talk about the uh, how it came about and everything and how it was documented in our next class inshallah ta'ala but today what we want to do is we want to first define usul al-fiqh and i just want to give you guys a glad tiding that this science will not be like the other classes that we took you won't be taking too much names and when they were born and when they died does that make you guys feel happy you guys feel is that good ah, some of you guys will allah barik so there won't be much names but there will be concepts that I want you to keep and understand, inshallah ta'ala. The scholars, they say, a person cannot talk about something if they don't have a perception of it. Al-hukmu ala shay' far'un, far'un an To place a ruling on something, it stems from a correct perception. Sahih? Let's say 1,400 years ago, you go back and you ask drugs. You say to the early generation, what is, is drugs halal or haram? They would say to you, what is drugs? What would they need? They would first of all need for you to explain to them what drug is and what it does. They can't place a ruling on it unless they know it. Once they find out what it means, what can they say to you then? Then it's haram. Are we all together, brothers? So it is necessary before you place a ruling on something, whether it's good or whether it's bad, first of all, have a perception of it. Have a tasawwur. And this, I said that the scholars, they said it. Al-hukmu ala shay' To place a ruling on something, whether that ruling is obligation, or recommendation, or prohibition. Whatever ruling you may place on it, don't. Hold it. First of all, perceive this thing correctly. And then after that, you can say, this is wajib and this is not wama ila dalik. So that's why we have to study this science, what it means, and what it is. Okay. A third point I want to say now. A third introduction. The third introduction, introduction I want to say is, usul al-fiqh, it's a compounded word. In Arabic they call this, Murakkab idafi. What do they call this? Murakkab idafi. Murakkab idafi. What does Murakkab idafi mean? It means usul and fiqh. Two words. Usul and fiqh. This is called Murakkab idafi. It's like Abdullahi. Abd and Allah. 
Are we all together, brothers? The scholars, what they have is, if it's murakkab idafi, they define it twice. That's why on the board you can see it. I wrote ta'arifu ilm usul al fiqh, and then here I wrote. Sorry. And then again I wrote ta'arifu ilm usul al fiqh twice. Why did I do it twice? Because they said what they do is they define each one separately first we're going to define usul by itself first and then what we're going to do is we're going to define fiqh by itself that's the first and then we come back to it again and we define them together as a science now. Does that make sense? Shall I repeat that again? The scholars they define Usulul Fiqh twice. Bi'tibari Mufradehi. Bi'tibari Mufradehi means what? Individually. Usul, what does it mean by itself? And Al Fiqh, what does it mean by itself? That's the first definition. They look at it individually. That's the first one. Are we all together? The second one is bring the two words together because it's a science now. It's actual science called Usulul Fiqh. Together, what does it mean now? When these two words came together, it became a science that you study. So, what does this science mean? That's the second definition when it's together. Does that make sense? Let's go for the first one. In the Arabic language, the word usul, what does it mean? Jam'u, jam'u aslin. Usul is plural. It's a what? It's a what? It's a plural. The word usul is a plural. Usul is a what? It's a plural. The singular is what? And the Arabic language, the jama' is how many types of jama'? How many types of plural are there in the Arabic language? Three. One, two, and three. The first one is called jama'u. Mudakkar. As-salim. Masculine plural, right? The second one is jama'u. Mu'annath. As-salim. Feminine plural. The third one is called jama'u. At-taksir. Broken, broken plural. This is Muslimuna, Mu'minuna. That's the, it's a masculine plural. The second type is called the what? Feminine plural. Al Muslimat, Al Mu'minat, Al Qanitat. That's Jam'u Mu'annati Salim. The third one is called Jam'u Taksir. It's called a broken plural. Why is it called a broken plural? Because the original word was alif, sad, lam. It broke it in the middle and it put a wow inside there. When it became a plural. When it moved from the singular 
to the plural, it got broken. The word got broken into two pieces. They put an extra word inside it, and that's how. Not always do they add word letters onto it. Sometimes they deduct a letter from it. And it comes in six ways, but we won't talk about it now, inshallah ta'ala. The jam'u taksir. Are we all together, brothers? So this usul is a broken plural. What is it? That's why I wrote here. Jam'u aslin. And the singular is a what? The singular is? The singular is asal. Wal aslu, the word asal, asfalu kullu shay. It's the... It's the lowest of everything. Sahih? This is the asal now we're standing on. The asal is anything that is asfal. Asfal means? Yeah, the foundation. Anything that's low. And that meaning, tatawwara, it evolved and evolved until it became al-aslu ma yubna alihi ghayruhu. Anything is built upon it. Asal then became anything you build anything on it is asal then. Since it was the since it was the bottom thing, whatever you build anything on top of it is called a asal. Does that make sense? Have we spoken about asal? We know now what asal means linguistically in the Arabic language. The word asal means ma yubna alihi ghayru. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Everyone with me? Now we're going to go into asal. Technically, what does it mean? Technically. What does it mean according to the scholars? Not the linguistics. Not the lexicon usage. According to the scholars of usulul fiqh. When they say asal, what do they mean? There are many usages, but I only mentioned four of them. Those are the four most common usages. The first one is Ar-Rajihu The first is Ar-Rajihu What does Ar-Rajihu mean? Ar-Rajihu, what does it mean? It means the strongest of two opinions There are two opinions and the rajih is the strongest of the opinion. Sometimes the word asal is used as a synonym as a rajih. I'll give an example. The, the scholars, they say, al-aslu fil-kalam al-haqiqa. What does this mean? Al-aslu, the default position. Fil-kalami in a speech is haqiqa, literal. Somebody talks to you right now and they have a conversation with you. Do you take their statement literal or do you understand it metaphorically? Everything he said is metaphorical. Everything is a what? Haqiqa, literal. If I say to ra'aytu asadan, for example, I say, Ra'aytu, I saw Asadan. I saw a lion. Hey, what do you understand from that? I saw a real lion. Class. Literal. But what about if I said, Ra'aytu Asadan Yakhtubu? 
I saw a lion doing khutbah. What happened here? You know I mean a courageous man. Sah? Are we all together, brothers? If I say, Ra'aytu asadan yakhutubu. I saw a lion giving khutbah. You know that a lion doesn't give? You know a lion doesn't give khutbah. Does a lion give a khutbah? No, it doesn't. So what do you do to this? What does this do? It diverts this word from the haywanul muftaris. It turns it away from the predator that you knew that came to your mind first. Because I used something that took it away from that. So now I only could mean I saw a courageous, brave man or a brave individual. That's the meaning I mean from it. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? But if I just said to you, Ra'aytu, I saw Asadan a lion, just like that. I just said it like that. Do you understand it metaphorical or do you understand it as a literal lion? I'm asking you a question. A literal lion, right? Because the qa'idah is, the pre- what do we say here? Al-asr fil kalami? That's the meaning, the two opinions, there are two opinions here. It can be metaphorical and it can also be what? And it can be literal. Which one did we strengthen? That is literal. And then that's what it means, rajih. So it's used as rajih sometimes. Am I making sense here? The second usage is Al-Qa'idatul Mustamirra. It's used as what? Al-Qa'idatul Mustamirra, which is Aklul Maytatu ala khilaf al-Asli. The scholars they say Aklul Maytati. Al-Rajih. Sorry. Aklul Maytah khilaf al-Asli. The second usage of the word asal is al-qa'idatul mustamirra. Qa'idatul mustamirra means the continuous principle. What does al-qa'idatul mustamirra mean? The second usage of the word asal, according to the scholars of this field, is that the word asal means al-qa'idatul mustamirra, the continuous principle. What do they mean by the continuous principle? I'll explain it to you. It means eating a corpse is a what? Aklul mayta, eating corpse is what? Khilafu? Khilafu al-asli. For you to go and eat a dead animal, it goes against the what? It goes against the? Here was asal. It goes against the? What does asal here mean? It means al-qa'idatul mustamirra. It goes against the continuous principle which was that the corpse is haram. Does that make sense? For you to eat a dead corpse in a time of necessity is a what? Khilaf al-asli. Does that make sense? Eating a dead animal when you're in a situation of necessity, you're about to die and you have to eat it. The scholars, they will say, Aklul maytati lil mubbar. The eating of the corpse for the one who is in a situation of necessity is khilaful asli. It goes against the continuous principle which was that it was haram. Am I making sense? Am I making sense? 
One more time. Who wants it two times? Ah, you want twice. Okay, listen. What I was saying was, the word asal is used according to the scholars of usul fiqh many ways. They use it in many different situations. I only mentioned four, but it's actually 15. So I only summarize, I'm just giving you four. And then when you go to the big books, you, the other ones will come up. And these are the four, four most prominent ones. They will use this word. And every time you need to know which one they mean by it. The first time they use it is that al-rajih. Al-rajih means the strongest of two things. Al-rajih means what? The strongest of two situations. And I gave you the example where the scholars, they say, al-aslu fil kalam al-haqiqa. The asal, the strongest opinion is that the speech is taken literal. That's the strongest opinion. There are other opinions, but this is rajih. Does that make sense? Have you all understood that? The second one here is Al-Qa'idatul Mustamirra It's used as the continuous principle Okay, first of all, we have to understand What is the ruling regarding eating corpse? Can you eat a dead animal that you haven't slaughtered? You saw its body lying under a tree You're in the middle of nowhere You have no food But you saw this animal, dead animal in front of you Generally speaking, is it permissible to eat it? So the continuous principle is Corpse are haram Allah said in the Quran Wherever some, Whenever somebody asks you and says to you What is the ruling on eating dead corpse? What will you say? Haram Wherever you go And then somebody says to you But I'm in a state of situation I'm in a situation of necessity I will die I will not live now you say that the continuous principle is paused. It's paused for now. Are we all together, brothers? Go and eat. The word asal is used in that context as the what? In a synonym of the word, al-qa'idatul mustamirra. It's used interchangeably. You can say al-qa'idatul mustamirra if you want. You can say al-asal if you want. Just like here, aklul maytatu khilafi you can say that if you want to. Or if you want, you can say Al-Asr. They mean the same here. The third one is Al-Mustahab. Al-Mustashab. Al-Mustashab. What does Al-Mustashab mean? Al-Istishab. Istishab means Biqa' ma kana ala ma kan. Al-Aslu Ha, pay attention to this. Istishab means the default position. Istishab means what? The default position. Example. Some, two people are standing here. Two individuals. One is accusing the other person of something. Two people. Okay, I'm accusing this individual here of something. I'm saying you have committed this crime. Okay, pay attention here. The scholars, they would say, this person's innocency is the default position. It's the istishab. It's the mustashab. His innocency 
is istishab. It's the default position. You now want to move that to the side. You want to get rid of his innocency. Prove your evidence. Bring evidence. This individual here, he doesn't have to bring evidence. He will just look and say, prove that I'm guilty. He doesn't have to say anything. No one should send him any homework or any... or waste his time to go find out to prove his innocency. No, he doesn't have to. He just says, I am upon the istishab. I'm upon the default position. Does that make sense? I am on the other hand, have to, what? I have to prove he is guilty. Like the Prophet said, If everybody was given what they claimed, If everybody was given what they claimed, People would start to claim people's money. I would walk and say, Akhi, the money in your pocket is mine. Give it to me. Are we all together? Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, The one who is accusing has to bring the evidence. And the other individual just needs to say, Wallahi, that is not true. He doesn't have to prove anything because he's using istishab, the default position. Are we all together? Another example I want to give is Al-Asru fil-ibadati tahrim What's the default position for ibadah? Ibadah, what's the default position? The default position for ibadah is that you can't do anything unless you have evidence for it. Does that make sense? So if somebody is saying to you, this is a sunnah, and another one is saying, no, this is a bid'ah, an innovation, who needs to bring the evidence? The one who is saying it's a sunnah. The one who is saying this is a sunnah, he needs to bring evidence. The one who is saying this is an innovation doesn't have to bring an evidence. Because the asal is nothing is allowed to be done to get closer to Allah by it unless you have evidence. Does that make sense? Am I making sense here? Because it's the istishab. Biqa ma kana ala ma kan. Leaving everything in its default position. Well, brothers, I have to stop here and mention a very important point. Which is a lot of the times you find in discussions, in debates, the person who doesn't have to prove anything is actually running around looking for evidence. Are we all together? You, know, you, you just have to say, Al-Aslu. It's this hub. The default position is what I'm sticking to. I don't need to prove anything. Another, the opposite to ibadah is ada. The customs of the people is permissible until proven otherwise. The people's customs, the ada, the customs of the people, is permissibility until proven otherwise. In other words, I can go and eat any animal I want, I can go eat, I can drink whatever substance I want, I could marry whoever I want. Until anyone proves to me that this person or this individual, I'm this food, I'm this substance, I can't take. We're walking in the middle of the desert, we see a six eyed animal. And then I say, Inshallah, I'm going to slaughter it. To be honest, I won't eat a six eyed animal. I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't. I just have to put that out there. It's just an example, okay? And another brother comes and says, Akhi, whoa, whoa, this animal doesn't look all right. Let's not eat it. And he goes, Akhi, I don't think it's halal. No. It's halal until you prove otherwise. Do you have any delil that this animal cannot be eaten? Are we all together, brothers? 
This is important. This chapter is very, very vital. And it saves you a lot of time. The fourth one is Ad-Dalil. It's just habi some, uh, sorry, the word Asal sometimes is used as a what? It's used as Ad-Dalil, the evidence. It's used as the evidence. So you'll say Al-Aslu So you say, for example, Al-Aslu uh, Al-Aslu fi akli al-ma al-ibaha The asal in drinking water is permissibility You mean the dalil of drinking water is permissibility So sometimes the word asal is used as al-dalilu, evidence those are the usages that they have. Even there's another one which is Al-Maqisu Alayhi, one of the four pillars of analogy. And I think I need to mention that one because we are going to talk about it. Add, another, add a fifth one to it, which is Al-Maqisu Al-Maqisu Alayhi. We need to open our minds, brothers, okay, and focus on these things. This is how we can re- appreciate, wallahi. Studying these signs will appreciate how our scholars and our heritage was preserved. Honestly, this will, it will help you a lot to know how the scholars reached that conclusion. Al-Maqisu alayhi means, you all know the four, you all should know the four pillars of Qiyas, right? Four pillars of Al-Qiyas. Qiyas is a what? Qiyas is analogy, right? Qiyas is when, when you want to do analogy. I'll give you an example, inshaAllah ta'ala. Okay? The Qiyas has four pillars. I'll mention them. Al-Aslu, Al-Far'u, Al-Hukmu, and Al-Illah. Those are the four pillars of Al-Qiyas. Okay. Al-Aslu here is used. You see? It's in there. What is the Asal? It's Al-Maqisu Ali. What does Al-Maqisu Ali mean? Okay, pay attention. The Messenger, sallallahu what did he say about alcohol? So we're going to write here Al-Khamru. Khamar. The Messenger, sallallahu what did he say about Khamar? Are you allowed to have Khamar? So the Hukum for Khamar is what? Al-Tahrimu. Okay, why? What's the illa? What was the reason? What was the reason why Nabiullah, Allah Azza wa Jalla, and the Prophet prohibited alcohol? Why? What was the illa? Al iskar, sah? The illa is al iskar. Al iskar means it intoxicates. Isn't that what the reason was? The Prophet did not say in the hadith, Kullu muskirin haram. Everything that intoxicates is haram. Pay attention here now. Something new came out that Nabiullah Muhammad did not talk about. New. You won't find it in the Quran, you won't find it in the Sunnah. What is it? Drugs. The Quran mentioned alcohol, but it didn't mention drugs. Drugs came when? After. Did it not? It came after. New substance that was found. That's the farah. 
الفرع هي is the what? It's the sub-branch. It's the thing that we're now going to use. That's the drugs. So let's write drugs inside there. Amal mukhaddarat. Drugs. Okay, pay attention. What are we comparing the drug to? Al-maqisu alayhi. Al-asr is what? Al-maqisu alayhi. It's the thing that you're taking the qiyas from. Does that make sense? The asal here is what you take the analogy from. What are you, what are you taking the analogy from? The, the khamar, right? Sah brothers. You're taking it from the khamar. How are you taking, how you, how are you taking it from the khamar? You're looking for the illa. Is intoxication present in drugs? Is, and that was the reason why the khamar was made haram, right? Huh? So they take the same ruling. Because the qaida is what? Al-hukmu yaduru ma'illatihi wujudan wa'adama. Al-hukmu yaduru ma'illatihi wujudan wa'adama. And this we're going to talk about it, inshallah ta'ala in more details when we study, uh, when we come to the chapter of Al-Qiyas, analogy. Does everyone here understand? All that we need to know here is the asal is used in the four, one of the four pillars of Al-Qiyas. That was, a that was a fifth usage. Am I talking to myself? You can all hear me, huh? Can you guys hear me? Or are you guys listening? Uh, okay, now we're going to move on to the second type of definition now of usul al-fiqh, together. Okay, oh, I missed something. I don't know why I never wrote it. You know what I missed? Muhammad, what did I miss? Say it loud. Ha, the definition of fiqh, I never wrote it on the board. Do you guys not see? I missed fiqh, I only mentioned usul, and I was meant to mention fiqh here, right? So let me mention fiqh, inshallah ta'ala. I'm going to mention fiqh in, 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 what do you call it? The reason I didn't write it, yes, that's why. Now I remember why I didn't write it. Can anyone help me why I didn't write it? Huh? Because we did fiqh, the introduction to fiqh. Did we not do it? Should I mention it then? Again? I'll mention it inshallah ta'ala. What does al-fiqh mean fi al-lugha? Al-fiqh, what does it mean? In the language. It means al-fahmu. Uh, there's a dispute whether al-fiqh actually means al-fahmu. Fahmu means understanding. Fiqh means understanding. In the language, it means al-fahmu. That's what Allah says in the Quran. ما نفقه كثيرا مما تقول لا نفهم كثيرا مما تقول we all together so the word fiqh means الفهم some scholars they said no it doesn't فهم means understanding does everyone here understand does anyone everyone here know what الفهم means فهم means to understand right some scholars they said no fiqh doesn't mean understanding it doesn't mean فهم there are a difference between the two of them what is the difference? They said that fiqh 
is a more detailed form of understanding. Any type of thing that requires research and it requires more observation, then this is called fiqh. And anything that everybody can understand, this is called fahm. Like for example, everyone knows that the sky is above us. Everyone understands that the sky is above us. So you can say, فَهِمْتُ أَنَّ السَّمَاءَ فَوْقَنَا I have understood that the sky is above us. But they say you can't say, فَقِيْتُ أَنَّ السَّمَاءَ فَوْقَنَا That I have fiqh, that the sky is above us. Why? Because they said this is knowledge that everyone shares. Fiqh is specific to daqiq al-fahm, a more detailed understanding. Am I making sense? Anyways, that's a technical, technical discussion. The second meaning is al-fiqh fi istilah. Am al-fiqh istilahan? What does fiqh mean technically? This we already took, right? Fiqh, what does it mean technically? It means ma'rifatul ahkam al-shar'iyyatil amaliyyah. We did this before, but I won't mention it here right now. I'll just mention it fast. Ma'rifatul ahkam al-shar'iyyah al-amaliyyah al-muktasabah. من أدلتها التفصيلية معرفة الأحكام الشرعية العملية المكتسبة من أدلتها التفصيلية That's what it means I'm not going to I'm not going to explain that because we did that before Did we do it before? صح We did do it before right? But just write it as a side point and keep it for yourself, inshallah ta'ala. Let's go to ilm usul al-fiqh. The meaning of usul al-fiqh. The meaning of what? We're going to study the meaning of usul al-fiqh when it comes together. Usul al-fiqh together, not separately. We've already done it separately. What does usul mean and what does fiqh mean? We know that, right? Now what do we need, what do we need to know? The two of them together. What do they mean? Three things it means. Just remember that. Usul al-fiqh, wherever you go, wherever book you read, always remember it just de- it's basically the definition is three things. Ma'rifatul adillatil ijmaliyah wa kayfiyatul istifadati minha wa halul mustafid. Three things. This is the first. This is the second. This, sorry. This is the second. And this is the third. That's the definition of usul al-fiqh. And I'll explain it for you. First point is مَعْرِفَةُ الدَّلَائِلِ الْفِقِّ الْإِجْمَالِيَّ إِجْمَالًا The first one, inshallah ta'ala, what does it mean? أُصُولُ الْفِقْ It deals with أُصُولُ الْفِقْ means Point number one Comprehensive evidence Dalail is the plural of dalil Dalail is the plural of what? Dalil. Dalil is a what? Evidence. Ah. Al-fiqh. You already know what fiqh means. Ijmalan means comprehensive. 
So it means comprehensive evidence. Fiqh, usul fiqh is what? Comprehensive? Comprehensive evidence. What do we mean by comprehensive evidence? Pay attention. The evidence is two types. The evidence is what? Two types. The first one is comprehensive evidence. Generic evidence. And the second type is called specific evidence. Here's Adilla Tafsiliya. You saw it there and here's Adilla Ijfiq Ijmaliya. That's the difference between Usulul Fiqh and Fiqh. What do they mean? I'll explain it. So far, are you guys with me before I explain this point? Is everybody so far with me? Today, I'm actually really trying to drill it into your heads. Is everyone understanding? Yeah? Okay. Usulul Fiqh, the first point is comprehensive evidence. Whereas fiqh is specific evidence. I'll give an example of comprehensive evidence. Al-amru. Al-amru al-mutlaq. Ha-yaqtadi al-wujub. Okay, this is evidence now. This is this dala'il al-fiqh al-ijmalan. What does it mean? It means a commandment from Allah and the Messenger. What does it benefit us? Obligation. If Allah instructs you something, if Allah commands you something, it shows obligation. You have to do it. Does that make sense, everyone? Huh? Does that make sense? Does everyone understand what I just said here? A commandment that comes from Allah and His Messenger, it shows obligation, meaning you have to do it. Can I use this in any way I come to? Whether it's in Tahara, whether it's in Salah, whether it's in Zakat, whether it's in Psalm, whether it's in Hajj, wherever I see the Prophet do a command, can I say that it shows obligation? Yes, because it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive evidence. Allah says in the Quran, "Waqimu as-salah." Aqimu is a fi'il amr. Is it not a commandment? Is Allah not commanding us to pray? Aqimu as-salah to establish the prayer. Isn't Allah not saying that? Then that shows it's obligatory to establish the prayer because Allah is commanding us. It shows that we have to pray then. And give the zakat. Is that a commandment? What does it also benefit us? What does it benefit? benefit us? It benefits us obligation. Aqimu salah and zakat are two different chapters. But you're using this evidence, which is al-amru yaqtadil wujub. This is evidence, it's a proof. What are you using it for? You're using it for many chapters, so they say it's comprehensive. Does that make sense? Like in when I say, The nullifiers of the prayer are seven. Can you use that for zakat? Can you use that for hajj? That's fiqh. It's, comp- it's specific evidence. Am I making sense here? The nullifiers of the prayer are seven. 
You can't use that for zakat. You can't use that for hajj and other chapters of fiqh. You can only use it for what? Only one particular chapter. That's the difference between the two. Anyways, the first point is Dala'ilul fiqh ijmalan. The first point and the first definition of usul fiqh is it deals with comprehensive evidence. Second part of the definition is minha. And how do you benefit from the text? And how do you benefit, benefit from the text? How can I benefit from this ayah in front of me? And the way that you can benefit from the text. When is this text general? When is it specific? When is it restricted? When is it unrestricted? When is it abrogated? When is it not abrogated? You study it here. Am I making sense? Here comes the chapter known as Dalalat. Dalalatul Alfaz. You study Dalalatul Alfaz. This term shows generalization. This term shows specification. This term shows unrestricted. This term shows restricted. This term shows abrogation. This That's how you benefit from the text. Am I making sense? Yes? No? Yes? Am I making sense? Yes or no? I just want to say something to you brothers. It takes time to understand these information and you have every right to think that this is not drilling into my head now. But it's your first time hearing it, correct? But for me it's not my first time. So to think that you can understand it like I have understood it now is being unfair to yourself. And that's many people's mistakes. Why am I not understanding it the way he's explaining he understands it? That's many years. Even I didn't understand it when I first heard it. I'm like, what's happening here? Sah? What has evidence got to do? Is evidence was only what Allah and His Messenger said? Sah? What's taking place here? But practice makes. That's one of the things that you learn when you study English, right? Practice makes. Practice makes perfect. If you're studying headway, have you guys ever heard headway English? You guys haven't heard of the headway English? Okay. I think it was the Oxford Press where the people learn beginner English and intermediate English and foundation English. The point is, it's going to be, brothers, no one's going to lie, I'm not going to lie to you and say every science that you're studying is going to be easy and it's going to be, no, it's not. But it does need you to use your brain and to think and not to give up. Don't give up. The people who put this science together, who came up with it, who organized it like this, they didn't even have anything to use from before that. They had to sit down and look at all the evidence themselves and organize it themselves. You are using a, a guideline that they set. All you just need to do is understand it. Are we all together? So let me repeat that one more time. The definition of usul fiqh is that it deals with comprehensive evidence, general evidence. Second thing is, how do I benefit from the text? This statement from the messenger, how do I benefit from it? Am I making sense? I'll give you an example. And I mentioned this example before, but I'm going to repeat it again. How the Sahabas, how they knew to benefit from the text. 
This is what الاستفادة منها. They knew how to benefit from the text. At the time of Uthman ibn Affan ibn Abdul Barr mentioned this in his Kitab al-Tamheed, which is the explanation of Al-Muatta. That at the time of Uthman, a woman, she gave birth after six months. She gave birth to a child. Her husband said, this woman, she cheated before I married her. How could she, get, how could she give birth in six months? So the woman got taken to court and they, she was going to, the, the qada, the hukum was going to happen to her. Ali ibn Abi Talib bin Had, he got in contact with Uthman fast and quick. And he said, Uthman, this woman has every right to give birth in six months. And it's in the Quran. Uthman said, where is it in the Quran? He said, okay, let's read it together. Uthman, by the way, you have to understand, was min huffad al-sahaba. One of the illustrious, noble sahabas when it came to the Quran. He memorized the Quran, mutqin of the Quran. Uthman radiallahu anhu. But that just shows you only the person who has ihata, who has every knowledge is who? Who is it? Allahu Azza wa Jalla. Uthman radiallahu anhu said to Ali ibn Abi Talib, what do you mean she could give birth in six months? He said, didn't Allah say in the Quran, وَالْوَالِدَاتُ يُرْضِعْنَ أَوْلَادَهُ No, Allah says, وَوَصَّيْنَا الْإِنسَانَ بِوَالِدَيْهِ حَمَلَتُ أُمُّهُ كُرْهًا وَوَضَعَتُهُ كُرْهًا وَحَمْلُهُ وَفِصَالُهُ ثَلَاثُونَ شَهْرًا وَحَمْلُهُ The mother is going to carry the child. وَحَمْلُهُ وَفِصَالُهُ ثَلَاثُونَ شَهْرًا The carrying of the child in the stomach and the breastfeeding, Allah said, 30 months. ثلاثونة? 30 months. Good. The Quran already told us what? The breastfeeding of the child is how much? How much is that? 24. How much is left? That six months was her pregnancy. That's called Dalalatul Iqtiba. Does everyone understand how it came about? Allah said that the mother is carrying the child and she's breastfeeding the child for 30 months. In another ayah, Allah told us how much is the breastfeeding. So what is left from whatever we deduct the breastfeeding, what's left? كَيْفِيَةُ الْإِسْتِفَادَةِ مِنْهَا Ali said that. It's called Dalalatul Iqtida. Got it from the Quran. Does that make sense, brothers? And I, there are many examples of ulama who did that. How to benefit from this text that's in front of you? How do you use it in your advantage? How could you use it to prove a point? We're all together, brothers. The Prophet did not say in the hadith, A person may be carrying a hadith, and then he's passing you on to somebody who has even more fiqh than him, that would hear the hadith and say, well, I have extracted 200 masail from this. This hadith by itself, I've extracted 200 issues from it. Sometimes, subhanAllah, wallahi, you, you're reading مَثَلًا مَجْمُعُ الْفَتَاوَى by Shaykh Al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah or you're reading the explanation of some of the great scholars and then you see them extract a ruling from a hadith that you hear every day. You're like, what happened? Wallahi, I've seen this hadith. How can this hadith prove this art point? Are we all together? I'll give you another example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said in the Quran, 
Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, those of you who believe. Ati'u Allah, obey Allah. Wa ati'u Rasulah and obey the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ulil amri minkum and obey those who have authority over you. And then Allah said, فَإِن تَنَازَعْتُمْ If you dispute one another. What did Allah say? We disputed one another. What did Allah command us to do? Pay attention. Let's slowly understand. We need to take fiqh out of this. Pay attention here. فَإِن تَنَازَعْتُمْ We disputed one another. We're arguing. Allah instructed us to do what? Take it back to who? فَرُدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ to take it back to who? Allah and His Messenger, in kuntum tu'minuna billahi wal yawmil akhir. Dalika khayrun wa ahsanu ta'wila. What about if we don't dispute? That's a proof for ijma'ah. If we dispute, then we go to the Quran and Sunnah. When we don't dispute, then that agreement that we all have is the evidence itself. We don't need to look for any other evidence. Do you guys see that? This is another type of benefit from the text, which is what? Mafhum and mantuq. The evidence, it shows you something directly, and it sometimes can show you something indirectly. Sahih? Am I, am I making sense here? So this point, brothers, is minha. How can I benefit from this text? Last but not least, وَحَالُ mustafid, And the situation of the one who's benefiting from the text. The third thing that usul al-fiqh, its definition is, is wahal al-mustafid. Wahal al-mustafid is the mujtahid. Wahal al-mustafid is who? Al-mujtahid. Who's a mujtahid? We mentioned it before. The mujtahid is the one who knows how to benefit from the text. Are we all together? He can go to the text himself, open the ayah, and just extract rulings from it like that. Are we all together? Why and how can he do it? He has the instruments to do it, right? Are we all together, brothers? He has the tools to do it. He, oh, he knows and he's mastered the dalalatul alfaz, the aam and the khas and the mutlaq and the muqayyad and the mujmal and the mubayyan and the zahir and the mu'awwal and the nasikh and the mansukh. He knows all of that. Are we all together, brothers? Well, Abdurrahman ibn Mahdi, he used to say, we know hadiths when we just hear it. We don't even need to look at the chain. Before we even look at the chain, we know if the Prophet said it or not. Just by hearing the hadith. The reason is because these people, they lived with the Prophet's statement so much, they know the way he talks. Sah? They know the way the Prophet talks and the, the way his speech goes. So when somebody lies about the Prophet, they know this is not the Prophet's way of speaking. Are we all together, brothers? So the mustafid is the mujtahid. Huh. And the muqalid is also studied in here as well which is the opposite. So in usul al-fiqh, brothers, in simple terms, he, you're going to, or I'm going to come to it, inshallah, soon. But this is what you study. If you break it down, you can, the whole subject of usul al-fiqh and what he studied in it is actually mentioned here. 
The first one is Dala'ilu al which is you learn the hukum al taklifi and hukum al wadiyan the wujub and the nadb and the and here you learn dalalatul alfaz aam khas mutlaq muqayyad mujmal mubayyan and all of that here you learn the mujtahid the mufti the mustafti the muttabi and all of that they come under here does that make sense this point is kind of what i mentioned at the top which is mawdu' usulul fiqh what does usulul fiqh discuss what's this topic about It really is about What is a proof and how do you benefit from it? The adilla, the evidence in terms of its usages are two types. Adilla which is muttafaqun alayha. Evidences which are all agreed upon. Al-kitab sahih Those four are agreed upon. So let me break it down slowly, brothers. Sometimes I go fast. And that's what's just happened now. This topic, Usul al-Fiqh, if somebody asked you, what does this topic speak about? What does it deal with? In simple terms, it deals with two things. What does it deal with? Two things. Number one, what is the evidence? What's a, what can I use as a proof? And the second thing is, how can I then benefit from that proof? That's all it is. Does that make sense? And remember, what is evidence? The scholars, they agree on what is evidence? Four things. What are the four things they agree upon? Al-Kitabu, Sunnah, Wal-Ijma'ah, Wal-Qiyasu Sahih. The Qiyas is two, there's a Qiyas which is Farid. It's a Qiyas which is Fasid, sorry. Batil, the scholars call it. There is a qiyas which is far-fetched. And there is a qiyas which is sahih. The qiyas which is sahih is the one that met the four pillars that we mentioned. The four rukun. Asal and the fara' and the hukum and the illa was all correct. That's the evidence that we can use. There are evidences which are differed upon. Like the action of the people of Medina. Imam Malik and he believed that. Amalu ahal Medina. Sah? It's disputed whether it's evidence or not. Saddu dharai'ah. Saddu dharai'ah means can we stop something because it's, we know what it's going to lead to. That's also a different upon evidence. And also, istishab and al-adah, muhakkama and things like that. Well, istifadatu minha, how do we benefit from this text? It's also the discussion of usul al-fiqh. The last part, inshallah ta'ala, of today's class. We're going to go over it as fast. That, that was the hardest part, okay? You can now breathe. You want to you breathe? <laughs> Nowadays, people just love this concept of breathing and breathing, huh? Istimdadu ilmu usulul fiqh. Where's usulul fiqh? Rooted from Where did this science come from? Sorry Where did this science Come from? Where did it get rooted from? How did it come about? It came from these eight things It's an amalgamation Of these eight things That came together 
Okay? One, Al-Kitabu. It was taken from the book of Allah Azza wa Jalla. Usul fiqh is taken from the Quran. As-Sunnah is taken from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's Sunnah. Are we all together, brothers? Number three is taken from the Ijma', the consensus the Ummah had. Number four, Al-Adillatul Aqliyah. The rational intellects. Some masail usuliyah is built upon aql. And the aql is accepted as long as it doesn't go against the what? As, it, as long as it doesn't go against the text. And that's another discussion for another time. Also number five, it's taken from mustalah al-hadith. Usul al-fiqh, you study in there, mursal, and mutawatir, and ahad. They study that in usul al-fiqh. Who did they borrow it from? They borrowed it from Mustalah al-Hadith. Ilm al-Aqeedah. Usul al-Fiqh has a lot of connection with what? Aqeedah. For example, the concept of al-Haqiqah and al-Majaz. Majaz is metaphor. Sah? And the types of Majaz. Al-Majaz al-Istara and Majaz, which is um, al-Mursal. And it's types, it's aqeedah-related issue. It's taken from there, right? It's also taken from the Arabic language. Usul al-fiqh is also taken from where? If you don't know Arabic brothers, and you're lacking in Arabic, you'll struggle to understand usul al-fiqh. And we, 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 in this particular module, when we study usul al-fiqh, we're not studying the usul al-fiqh. We're just doing a what? An overview. We'll just do an overview. To be very honest with you, after next lesson, all you're going to do is the history and how it came about and who wrote it and just the books that were written in it and things like that. And the methodology of the scholars and how they wrote Usul al-Fiqh in different books. That's really what we're going to do. But if you want to study Usul al-Fiqh and go in, then go for Al-Waraqat. Once you finish Al-Waraqat, then maybe read Al-Usul bin Ilm al-Usul. And then once you finish that, Go for the Kitab Maqa'id al-Fusul. Once you finish that, then maybe you should try to memorize and study Al-Maraqi Su'ud Limubtaghir Ruqiyy wa Su'ud by Sheikh Abdullah ibn Hajj al-Shikhiyyatiyyu rahimahullah. A thousand lines in Usul al-Fiqh. And if you then think, MashaAllah, I, I, I'm, I love this science, I want to even go more, then maybe you should read Jam'ul Jawami' by Subki. The eighth... Science that Usul al-Fiqh was taken from is Ilm al-Fiqh. Where was it taken from? Ilm al-Fiqh. It was taken from? It was taken from Fiqh. It's taken from? It's taken from Fiqh. These are the eight places where Usul al-Fiqh is taken from. Here I broke it down in a simple way, how the scholars break usul al-fiqh down. And this is something already I mentioned to you, but it's in a more organized way for you to remember. Usul al-fiqh is broken into four. The first, and some scholars, they have another way of calling it, they call it the madlul instead of the thamara. The madlul. And then the muthmir, and the طرق الاستثمار and the مستثمر المستثمر أصول الفقه is these four 
al-ahkam, jurisprudent rulings. What are you going to do? Al-ahkam, usul fiqh, what does it deal with first of all? Amawar usul fiqh, the whole chapter usul fiqh is broken into these four. And I just did it here just to make it easier for you to remember. Al-ahkam, jurisprudent rulings. Evidences. Second one is evidence. Number four is Dalalatul Adilla. The indication here is Aam, Khas, Mutlaq, Muqayyad, Mujmal, Mubayyan. Basically, how to benefit and how to extract the ruling out of there. And last but not least, the Mujtahid, the scholar who's doing the extracting. When can I be him? And how can I extract a ruling from it? Those are the four. The ahkam, the adillah, dalalatul adillah, and the mujtahid. When they come to the ahkam, they break it into two. Al-ahkam, al-shari'iyah, al-taklifiyah. And then al-wad'iyah. And the adillah, they divide it into two. Evidence which is Mutafakun alayhi Ama mukhtalafun fihi And then the hakam al-taklifiyah is Al-ijabu Wal-nadbu Wal-ibahatu Wal-karahatu Wal-tahrimu That's five Remember the five you And al-wad'iyah is also five Al-sabab Al-shart Al-mani' But you see, this is not what we're meant to do. It's a side point that I'm just mentioning. You don't have to know that. And it's got nothing to do with us over here. Next lesson, inshaAllah ta'ala, we're going to be al-kareem, start how usul al-fiqh started and the methodologies that are written in usul al-fiqh. The methodologies in which usul al-fiqh is written in. We're going to talk about tariq al-mutakallimin and the tariqa al-hanafiyya and how they authored it. And al-imam al-shafi'i and how he came to the writing of usul al-fiqh. وَأَوَّلُ مَنْ أَلَّفَ فِي الْكُتْبِ مُحَمَّدِ بْنُ شَافِعِ الْمُطَّلِبِ وَغَيْرُهُ كَانَ لَهُ سَلِيقَةِ مِثْلُ الَّذِي لِلْعُرْبِ مِنْ خَلِيقَةِ How al-imam al-shafi'i was the first person who wrote it. And... We're going to make it down to Al-Waraqat. The small book, Al-Waraqat, that we study today, how that book came about. Does anyone have any questions, inshallah ta'ala? Any question regarding today's class? Tafaddal. The default position of ibadah is you're not allowed to do it unless you have evidence. A person is not allowed to worship Allah in something unless he has evidence. Min al-kitab or sunnah From the kitab or the sunnah? Because the asal is at-tawqif. You're not allowed to do it. The like in the customs and the norms of the people is what? It's permissibility. It's permissibility. So, 
the person who argues that this ibadah is a sunnah and the one who argues that it's a bid'ah, who, who, has who, who has to prove otherwise? The one who says it's a sunnah. Because what is the qa'ida is All of the roads to Allah Azzawajal is blocked. All the roads to Allah Azzawajal is blocked. And the only road that's open to Allah Azzawajal is which road? What road is open? The road that Nabi Muhammad took. The road that Nabi Muhammad took, that's the only road that's open. Any other questions? Tabal. Wa alaikum salam. If Nabi Muhammad did an act in many different forms, in different situations, what do we do? For example, if I bring an example, is that the Prophet he recited the tashahud in different ways. And when he went into the salah, he had different istiftahud dua, the opening of the salah. There were different istiftah he would do. The person it is better to change from one to the other. It's called a tanwir. Sometimes you do this one, sometimes you do this one. The reason is because, especially salah, it is recommended that if the Prophet used to open sometimes with this dua, and then and it's also transmitted that he opened it with this dua, it is good to change it from this one to this one and to this one. So you can keep up the khushuh. If the Prophet in tashahud, he, he read it in different ways. Hadith Aisha is there. Hadith Ibn Mas'ud is there. It's good to change it so you can focus on your salah. Whereas if you keep doing the same thing, you're most likely going to lose focus because you're just going to say it when it comes to it without thinking about it. So it is best to change it. Is that the answer to your question? No. But more when it comes to the Prophet's actions and how do we distinguish between the Prophet's uh, his normal actions that he did and that which he did to get closer to Allah and that we need to follow him in and etc. That is discussed greatly in this chapter of Usul al-Fiqh, al-Af'al, the Prophet's actions. And what are the rulings? Mm. Naam, when it comes to the issues of ikhtilaf, difference of opinion, without a doubt there is always a truth in it. There's only one way. But if the khilaf is an accepted, permitted khilaf, then it will be subjective what is right. Does it make sense? For example, in the salah, do you go down on your knees first when you want to go to the sujood? Or should you go down on your hands? One of them is right. 
Both of them can't be right. But this is a permitted difference of opinion and each person is going to argue that their one is right. But there is one, one, one right. The question is, which one is the one that's right? Are we all together, brothers? So I want to explain something which is, I think it's very good that we understand this. And I think if we do, بِإِذْنِ الْكَرِيمِ Allah will bring us together. Even that Allah said in the Quran, وَلَا يَزَالُونَ مُخْتَلِفِينَ إِلَّا مَنْ رَحِمَ رَبُّكَ وَلِذَلِكَ خَلَقَهُمْ That the people are going to have difference of opinion and that's how Allah created them. But the khilaf, and I think I pressed on this point before, the khilaf, if it's based upon the understanding of a text, each person is using the same text, they're using the same evidence, and it's all about how this text is understood, then this difference of opinion is permissible. Are we all together? If they're both saying, this hadith, this is what it means, and another group is saying, no, 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 this is what the hadith means. Are we all together? This difference of opinion, the scholars, they call it khilaf sa'ikh, a permitted difference of opinion. Lakin, if one group don't have an evidence in this issue and another group have an evidence who do we give precedence to? the one who has the evidence the one who's using the evidence and saying I have evidence and the other one doesn't have evidence are we making um, just give you one example this is, this is an, an issue against the Hanafiya because we're talking about fiqh let's mention a Hanafi related issue the great scholars of the Hanafi madhab there's a mas'ala about the woman being married off without, I mean the woman marrying off without the permission of her wali, her guardian. Have you all heard of this discussion? Okay. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah rahmatan wasi'a may Allah bestow his never-ending on mercy onto him. A great imam. A great imam. He said, is the woman allowed to go to the market? And is she allowed to sell, is she allowed to sell and is she allowed to buy? Question is yes, you can. A woman can go to the shop and she can buy product and she can sell what she wants, true or false? Brothers, she can, right? You're all sure, right? She can. Ha <laughs> ha. Be careful. Some of you guys are looking at me like, no, they can't. They have to stay at home. Ah. <laughs> uh, so they can, they can go out and they can buy and they can sell. And Imam Abu Hanifa and others, they said, if they can do that to something that isn't them, why can't they give themselves out and get married? Are we all together, brothers? She can go and say to her brother, I'm married to you, without the permission of her wali. Does that make sense? Here, what they did is qiyas. What did they do? Qiyas is at the top of the ladder or is it the bottom of the ladder? What's the first one? The Quran. What's the next one? And then what comes? Al-Ijma'ah. And then what comes? Al-Imam Abu Hanifa and Al-Sha'bi and others who took this opinion, 
they ran to Qiyas. And evidences was provided from the Quran and from the Sunnah that the woman cannot get married without the permission of her wali. Who are we going to take here? Yeah? We're going to take the Quran, the Kitab of Allah Azza wa Jal. And we're going to take the Sunnah here. Because the Prophet said, The woman who goes and gets married without the permission of her wali, her marriage is null and void. Are we all together? The Sunnah said that. The Quran Allah mentions in many places, marry the women off. What would Allah say to the men? Marry the women off. Amma, do not prevent the women from getting married to who they want. Why, do, why would the Qur'an say that if the woman can marry herself off? So we have Qur'an and we have Sunnah. The Qiyas that Abu Hanifa and others used is not accepted. And this difference of opinion is not tolerated. Why? You will be going against the Kitab and the Sunnah based on the statement of a person and Allah clearly instructed you to do what? Allah Taala told you, وَاتَّبِعُوا مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ Follow that which has been sent to you from your Lord. وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا and do not follow مِنْ دُونِهِ Besides Allah, awliya, allies of Allah. Abu Hanifa, inshallah, is from the awliya of Allah. But Allah said, don't follow them. And Abu Hanifa, if these evidences became clear to him, he would have left it himself because of his love for the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Because of his love... For the Quran and Sunnah. Abu Hanifa is rewarded even if he gets it wrong. He's either between two rewards or one reward. Does that make sense? Like you are sinning after the evidence came to you, you're still persistent upon it. Does that make sense? So these kind of issues have to be made clear. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? No? Yes? Ah. Then remember, you are a slave of Allah. You are a slave of Allah, no one else. The speech of Allah is number one. The speech of the Prophet comes second. Every other person's speech is after those two. If they are in line with the Quran and the Sunnah, فَعَلَى الرَّأْسِ وَالْعَيْنِ As they say, put it on your head. Keep it and stick to it. If not, فَضْرِبُوهُ عُرْضَ الْحَائِضِ What do you do to it? Dismiss it. And all of them, they say that. Imam Shafi'i, what did he say? And Imam Shafi'i said, قولي, If my speech opposes the speech of the Prophet what did he say? Hit it against the wall. And Imam Malik, said, Everyone's speech is either taken or rejected except the Messenger And Imam Abu Hanifa said the same. And Imam Ahmad Rahimahullah said the same. So, may Allah make us a people who stick to this Qur'an and we stick to this sunnah, the salvation and the prosperity is connected to that. And may Allah also, and when I mention this brothers, I really want you to understand, this is not speaking bad or ill against Abu Hanifa. None of us here is equal to his knowledge and his understanding. Are we all together brothers? No one is close to Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. He's an imam. The fact that the ummah have taken him as an imam is an indication Allah wanted his madhab to spread. Are we all together brothers? And his virtue, when we spoke about it, when we spoke about it. Rahimahullahu, rahmatan wasi'ah. But here I'm put in a position where I have to look at the text from the Quran and the Sunnah. And the great Imam Abu Hanifa, 
I will choose the Quran and the Sunnah. Because he, Abu Hanifa, instructed me to do that as well. And I know he himself would have done that as well. Does that make sense? So what happens sometimes, brothers, is some people, what they do is when they see an imam say something, the people are two extremes. Extreme is they find the imam go against an ayah from the Quran or a hadith. Automatically, they take the imam down and drag him on the ground. They say, how did he do that mistake? How did he do that mistake? So they do ihdar. They put his reputation and they start to criticize him because of that. And another group of people, they go extreme in exaggeration with that imam. And so what they do is they stick to him even though it goes against the Quran and the Sunnah. Does that make sense? Both are blameworthy. Faddal. You see, you're right in the sense The Quran and the Sunnah In terms of Ruling, both of them are the same Like without a doubt They can't be virtue, they can't be the same In terms of virtue The reason is because the Quran is Every letter you read You get closer to Allah by it We're together The Quran Every letter in the Quran is a reward and the speech of Allah Azza wa Jalla, nothing can be like it. Whereas the hadith is the wording of the Prophet This is the wording that the Prophet worded, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the wording of Allah and the wording of any human being cannot be the same. Na'am, like in sahih, in terms of ruling, they're the same. Like in terms of virtue, Allah's speech is higher than anyone else. The hukum was given to him as ilham, not the wording. No, 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 no. The Prophet ﷺ, he worded the hadith himself, sallallahu alayhi But the ruling, I want you to understand something. The Prophet did ijtihad himself sometimes. What did he do? Pay attention to this. The messenger will do his own independent reasoning. If that ijtihad was wrong, Allah will correct him. And if he got corrected, then that's what would spread to the people. If it didn't, then it was a revelation. That's what Allah was pleased with. Does that make sense? That's why you find sometimes he say, Atani Jibreel, when Jibreel came to me and informed me of this. Meaning I was wrong in what I said. Remember what he said to the blind man, Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum? He said to him, okay, no problem if you can't come to the masjid. And he stood up and he left Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum. And then Prophet called him. He said, Atasma'un nida. Can you hear the call? He changed his ruling. Because revelation came to him straight away telling him that's not the right answer. Does that make sense? So the sunnah is the second revelation. The sunnah is the second revelation. Sahih. The sunnah, if you read every letter for, from it, you don't get closer to Allah by it. Letter. Fadl. With an example. The difference between them, I mentioned, is that 
fiqh is a specific evidence and usul al-fiqh is comprehensive and general evidence. Fiqh is nawaqid al-wudu, shurut al-salah, arkan al-salah. It doesn't, arkan al-salah cannot be used for any other chapter in the religion. Mubtilat al-salah, the nullifiers of the prayer, is a specific issue, specific to fiqh. When you study fiqh, whatever you study in tahara is restricted to tahara. And whatever you study in fiqh, uh, sorry, in salah is restricted to salah. Like in usulul fiqh teaches you something you can use in all of fiqh. Like qawaid, principles it will give you that you can use in all of fiqh, in every chapter. Does that make sense? Huh? Ah, it's a foundation it's built upon. You see, brothers, the poet, he said, our religion did not give us rulings on everything. Allah didn't mention this is the hukum for this one. Oh, and this one also, there's a hukum for this one. No. Our religion gave us principles. It told us alcohol intoxicates is haram. We use that for any time until the day of judgment. Any intoxicating thing that comes, take it under there. Qawa'id, principles. So if you don't study usulul fiqh, you're going to struggle. You know what you're going to struggle with? You can't memorize fiqh. Fiqh is too many, it's too much sub-branches. Halal, haram, wajib, makroo, this, this, too many sub-branches. Qawaid al-usuliya, usul al-fiqh gives you one principle and maybe 50,000 things fall under there. 50,000 might be an exaggeration. 50,000 might be an exaggeration. But 50 masail might fall under this. Just the fact that I learned today that whenever Allah and His Messenger commands something, it shows obligation. Any place in the Quran I come across, Allah commanding me something, I already know. It's a principle, I can use it wherever I want. Does that make sense? Meaning it's a principle where you, many things fall under it. This is how usul fiqh is. Usul, under it falls many fiqh. Does that make sense, brothers? Can you memorize all this? Nobody can. Nobody has that time to memorize all of the furu' al-masail fiqiyya. I already mentioned to you last time. Kitab al-minhaj, 80,000. I mean, 60,000 masail is in Kitab al-minhaj by Imam al-Nawi. 60,000 fiqh issues. Kitab al-irshad al-ghawi fi masalik al-hawi by Ibn Muqri. 90,000 masail, 90,000 fiqh issues. Can you memorize that and remember it? Huh? Who can memorize 90,000 fiqh issues? Wajib, halal, haram, yajuz, la yajuz. 90,000. That's just one book fiqh. Imagine all of the fiqh books out there. Are we all together, brothers? They said Kitabul Hidayah by Marghinani has 120,000 in Hanafi fiqh. 120,000. Eight or twenty something thousand furu' fiqiyah in there. Who can memorize that? Usulul fiqh helps you because I may not know the ruling of an issue, but but I have principles. 
So you come to me and you talk to me and you say to me, Allah said this, the messenger said this, straight to I can give you ruling based on the principles I have. I've never heard of this issue. It's new to me. But I have a principle that I'm bringing back all of this to. Does that make sense, brothers? That's why it's easier to study usul al-fiqh and master it and that will allow you and help you with what? That will allow and help you and ground you on the roots. Where the haq? Ha! You can apply on many issues. Not something. Many, many, many issues. Remember our life as the Prophet said, A'mar ummati ma bayna sitin wa sab'ina wa qaleelu man yujuzu dhalik. This ummah is going to live for 60 to 70 years. No one's going to go beyond that. It's little who go beyond that. You can't spend your time memorizing all these furu' fiqiyah. You don't have time for that. So usul al-fiqh helps you shorten the road. Mm, mm, mm. Very good question. The brother asked the hadith of the Prophet Hadith If Allah wants good for somebody, He makes him understand the religion. The fiqh, when it was used in the Quran and the Sunnah back then, is not the fiqh that we're talking about now. The fiqh that was used in the Quran and the Sunnah meant the understanding of the religion in its totality. For example, Al Imam. Abu Hanifa used the word al-fiqh and he meant what? Fiqhul? The whole religion he meant. Are you with me brothers? We spoke about this before. Fiqh before, when the Salaf would use the word fiqh, they meant aqidah, akhlaq, everything. Back in the days. Lakin when it became a science, then it became ma'rifatul ahkam, al-shari'iyatil amaliyatil muqtasabatul idillatiyat tafsiliyah. It became a specific for science. And terms, they do change. Do, not, do they not change? Yeah? Terms, they change as time goes on. Remember the word makruh. What does it mean in the Quran? The word makruh, what does it mean in the Quran? Makruh in the Quran, it means haram. Makruh in the Quran, it means... Allah Ta'ala, look what he took, spoke about. Allah talked about killing. And he talked about zina. And he talked about all of that, and look what he said after that. He said, كل ذلك كان عند ربك مكروها. All of this to your Lord is makruh. Is killing makruh to Allah? If we take it based on the late definition? No, it meant it's haram. What did it mean? It's haram, naam. Faddal. That goes back to a usuli issue, which is, the, which is more than just the issue of fasting, because you're not applying it on fasting. But it goes back to a concept known as anwa'ul wajib, the types of wajib. There is a restricted type, of, it's called wajib muqayyad, and a wajib muwassa. A wajib that's unrestricted and a restricted wajib. And this question many people ask, but I, I think I should explain it a bit more. Ramadan is about to come, inshallah ta'ala. May Allah allow us to reach it safe and sound and give us the opportunity to do Qiyam and Siyam. Ramadan is about to come, right? How many days is Ramadan? 
30? 30 days. A person, Ramadan came and they missed a couple of days. After Ramadan comes what? Six days off, a shawwal is coming. Somebody missed some days of Ramadan. They want to do the shawwal. Remember, the Ramadan is a what? It's a wajib, it's an obligatory act. And the six days is a what? It's mustahab, right? It's recommended. Am I making sense here? If the person comes and does the six, when there's Ramadan on them, you give them precedence to a mustahab over a wajib. And this is wrong. Does it make sense? Am I making sense here? Because the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, وَلَا يَزَالُ عَبْدِي يَتَقَرَّبُ إِلَيَّ بِالنَّوَافِلِ حَتَّى أُحِبَّ فَإِذَا حَبَبْتُ كُنْتُ سَمْعَهُ الَّذِي يَسْمَعُ بِهِ Allah, He loves the person to come with what? مِمَّ افْتَرَضْتُ عَلَيْهِ That which I made obligatory on you. That's the thing Allah loves most. So you come with the wajib first. لكن Another issue is hitting. There's another usuli issue here. Which is, the person, they missed 29 days and they only fasted once. مثلاً they were sick or whatever reason, they missed it. Huh? Pay attention here. 29 they missed and they only fasted once. So even if they tried to bring it back, they will never catch Shawwal. Can they? Shawwal will miss them. True or false? Here what we say is, Ramadan is not restricted to a period of time. Lakin Shawwal is restricted to a time. The one that's restricted takes precedence over the what? The unrestricted, does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to everybody? So we say to the person, 29, huh? you can't fast. Okay, take these six days. Ramadan doesn't have a timing that you have to do it in. And some people believe this concept, which is Ramadan has to be paid back before the other Ramadan. That's not true. You don't have to. You just have to pay it back. That's a debt of Allah on you, but you don't have to pay it back before the other Ramadan. Am I making sense? No? I don't want to come across... As though I'm telling you guys, don't pay, don't pay back Ramadan. Don't pay it back. But the concept that says that you have to pay it back before the other Ramadan, there is no basis for that. But it is a debt Allah owes. On you, you have to keep, give it back. And the debt of Allah is the most befitting thing to pay back. Any other questions? Last question. Hmm. When it comes to the kitab, generally the imams were the same. They all memorized the book of Allah. You see, the book of Allah, can someone claim that he memorized the Quran? Can somebody say, I memorized the Quran? Can you claim that I memorized the Quran? Yeah? But can you claim that I memorized the Sunnah? So, the mistakes that happen generally from the jurists and the fuqaha generally is revolving around what? The sunnah. Everybody memorized the Quran. Little kids memorize the Quran. But the sunnah, Imam al-Shafi'i said in his kitab, Jumma'ul Ilmi, he's a liar. The one who claims that he memorized the sunnah, all of it. 
You can't. So that question that you asked, generally with the Qur'an, they are all the same. But it came to the sunnah. And as it seems apparent is that Imam Abu Hanifa, due to his land place of residency, Kufa, in Iraq, in which he was in, and the timing that Imam Abu Hanifa was, rahimahullah, the timing he was, meaning books of hadith were not compiled like that. Because remember, the first person who wrote was who? In hadith. Muhammad ibn Shihab Muhammad ibn Shihab al-Zuhri was the first. Who commanded him to do it? Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Does that make sense? And Imam Abu Hanifa didn't see the book of Umar Abdul Aziz. Nor did he see Muwatta and Imam Malik. Malik was after him. He didn't see the book of Ibn Jurayj and Al-Awza'i and these Imams. And Imam Abu Hanifa. So it came later. So Abu Hanifa, due to that, his madhab was very, him, him. His, his knowledge of hadith was less than the others. Lakin, what is amazing is, even then, what he could extract from the little that he had, showed you he was a great person. The little he had, and what he done with it. Allahu Akbar. Are we all together? And the other three are, they are called Ahlul Hadith. And Imam Abu Hanifa's madhab is called Madhab Ahlul Ra'i because of that issue. Like in, within them, without a doubt, the other three, within them, without a doubt, when it came to Hadith and the knowledge of Hadith, no one was close to Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And Imam Ahmed, when it came to Hadith, he was the highest of the four. There's no doubt about that. All of the, the scholars of the hadith, Bukhari and Muslim and Abi Dawood, and all of them were students of Imam Ahmed. Huh? His knowledge of hadith was faiq. Hatta Shafi'i would say to Imam Ahmed, if we narrate a hadith and it's weak, inform us. Shafi'i would say. But which madhab is the madhab you should follow? Imam <laughs> Shafi'i. <laughs> That's the madhab. Kun shafi'iyan. Shafi'i, inshallah, be saved, inshallah ta'ala. Yeah? There's a lot of reasons. I don't, where shall I start from? The reason why I, I believe Imam and I don't believe Imam Shafi'i's madhab is the most correctest of all. Pay attention to that. But I believe it's the madhab that has the most statements in generally everything. I mean, it's rare you find an issue, except the Shafi'i said something in it. Whereas all of the other three, they, you may not find a view in this issue for them. Does that make sense? It's a madhab which is very wasi', very vast. Like in the madhab al-Hanabila, be very honest with you, this is my honest opinion. The Hanbali madhab, when the Saudi Arabia, they got oil and stuff, that's when it spread. They got money, they now spread the Hanbali madhab. Like if you looked at 100 and 200 years ago, the Hanbali Madhab was not like that. The two Madhabs that really were the judges, the Qadis and the Qudat and everything was either Hanafi or Shafi'i. Yes. And the dispute around the Madhabs was every time Shafi'i against the Hanafiya. Yes. The Hanabila, they came later. 
Cut that part out of, out of the video, inshallah. Subhanakallah, bihamdik, ashadu la ilaha illallah, astaghfiruka, atubu ilayhi. Yes, Sahih Bukhari. Just an announcement, inshallah ta'ala. Next week, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to do. He said, Inni ara al fitan khilala buyutikum kama waqi al qatar. I see the fitna entering your households the, like the rain when it comes down. Because remember, Medina, the houses were made out of straw. The way that the rain, when it comes, it goes into your household. I see the fitna entering your households like that. And you all know the famous hadith that the Messenger, sallallahu the narrator, he said, the Prophet, he stood on the pulpit one day. He told us that which has happened, that which is happening, and that which was going to happen. And then he went down the pulpit. He prayed Dhuhr, and he went back on the pulpit again. And he did it. And then from Dhuhr to Asr, he did it again. And from Dhuhr Asr to Maghrib, he did it again. And from Maghrib to Isha, the Messenger spoke from Fajr to Isha. All of that, he was talking about the fitna that's going to happen. The narrator, he said, حَفِظَهُ مَنْ حَفِظَهُ وَنَسِيَهُ مَنْ نَسِيَهُ The one who memorized it, memorized it, and the one who forgot it, forgot it. So one of the things that the Salaf, they used to say is, عَلِّمُوا Teach your young children, عَنِ الْفِتَن Teach them about the trials and the tribulations. Why? عَرَفْتُ الشَّرَّ لَا لِلشَّرِّ وَلَكِنْ لِتَوَقِيهِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يَعْرِفِ الشَّرَّ مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَقَعْ فِيهِ If you don't know the evil, and you don't study it, you're most likely going to fall into it. If you don't know the fitna, and you haven't studied it, you might be swimming inside the fitna when you think you're not. The poet, he said, Imr al-Qais, he said, Al-fitnatu awwalu ma takunu fatiyyatan, tas'a bi zinatiha li kulli jahuli, hatta idha ishta'alat wa shabba dhiramuha, wallat ajuzan ghayra dhat halili. The fitna, when it's happening, Imr al-Qais said she is like a young, beautiful young woman. When the fitna really hits home and it hits, people won't realize what they were in was a fitna. So when the fitna turns its back and it walks away from the people, the people say, you know what? Subhanallah, we were inside fitna. All this time we were in a fitna. They won't recognize it when they are in it. The only time they recognize it is what? When it leaves. And Shaykh Al-Islam Taymiyyah said, Ahlul ilmi, the people of knowledge, يَعْرِفُونَ الْفِتْنَةَ قَبْلَ وُقْعِهَا The people of knowledge, they know the fitna before it even happens. They can see it because they study the hadith al-fitan. Are we all together? I mean, imagine brothers, wallahi, think about this. Dajjal is going to come. Dajjal has got one eye. Billahi alaykum, think about this. Dajjal hasn't got two eyes. One eye is missing. He's going to convince the people he's ilah and the people are going to listen to him. No one's going to say, what happened to your eye? Where's your other eye? How could that happen? That he fools the people that much that his deficiency is not seen. And the people are going to follow him? How did that happen? Think about it. And he's going to get the largest followers. Wallahi, today when I look at social media and the way the people are and they see a little clip from the social media and everybody's trying on the streets. I realize, wallahi, it's a time like this when the jail will come. One person does it, it's a hashtag. Everybody wants to do it. True or false? Sah? Then coming to this seminar will help you a lot. 
to study what fitna is, the reality of fitna, and the things that the Prophet prophesied. We're all together, brothers. Inshallah, I hope to see you there. Barakallahu feekum wa jazakumullahu khairan.